Well, good morning. I suppose we are all aware that there are various challenges facing the Christian faith in the contemporary world. We could list some of them as follows. Some people find the sexual ethic that Bible-believing Christians hold to to be increasingly beyond the pale. They cannot accept that people in the current Western world would anymore preach the idea that any kind of sexual activity outside of a traditional view of marriage is what the Bible calls porneia that that could be in any sense of the word acceptable to modern people. Indeed, for many people, this sexual ethic is moving traditional Christian interpretation of the Bible and those who are evangelicals into the camp of racists or bigots. The fact that this is woefully inaccurate and that Christians have, in fact, a love-the-sinner-hate-the-sin approach to all sins and that they are much more interested in preaching Christ than denouncing other people, or that, in fact, it was William Wilberforce and evangelical Christians who were at the forefront of denouncing slavery, or a minister called Martin Luther King who was at the forefront of the civil rights campaign, is all somewhat beside the point. The impression, the perception is, for many people, that the traditional Christian ethic is a significant barrier to believing in Christ in the contemporary world. It was ever thus. And that is partly why we have been studying the book of Romans, to show how Paul preached the gospel to the Roman Empire, a civilization, of course, that was famous for its sexual laxity. Other challenges that face Christians today in terms of articulating their faith in a commendable way to contemporary people revolve around the authority of Scripture. Again, the fact of the matter is, as organizations like Tyndale House and Cambridge University, all the many scholars at institutions like Wheaton College have managed to establish is that belief in the historical accuracy of the Bible has never been easier. Classical scholars note how strange it is that with less data, classical conversations about ancient texts have moved towards confidence, while discussions in liberal academies about the Bible have become far less confident. The reason is not hard to find. The Bible makes moral claims. And therefore, the bar is set far higher for its acceptance. But the data is there and defensively credible for the historical accuracy of Scripture. On top of the authority of Scripture, contemporary sexual ethics, recent challenges for articulating the Christian faith in the contemporary world have included a vigorous, renewed advocacy for atheism. Now, some of the energy in that discussion has thankfully dissipated, but it has left behind a sort of blogger wake. 
with many people thinking that all enlightened, right-thinking, scientific, logical people don't accept God any more than they believe in an, quote, invisible friend, end quote. That the logic of the advocacies for this neo-atheism has been described by other atheists as embarrassingly bad. We believe in all sorts of things we cannot see, like electricity, to name but the most obvious. Well, that has helped undermine the case of these neo-atheists in the public sphere gradually. It is self-evidently the case that you can be an elite scientist and be a Bible-believing Christian. There are many examples of this. And that those who are not Bible-believing Christians charge that the only way you can do that is by leaving your Bible behind when you do your academic research does not change the fact that those scholars who are Christians disagree. In fact, they would say that when they do their research, they wonder at the mind of God revealed in quantum and history and physics and chemistry and archaeology. Each of these, and perhaps others, those significant, sexual ethics, authority of the Bible, the existence of God, pale into insignificance, though, beside the greatest challenge facing Christian articulation of orthodox belief in the contemporary world today, and that is what used to be called, by a previous generation, the scandal of particularity. That is, how is it really possible that what one person did in Galilee, in Jerusalem, in Israel, so long ago, has any real impact on what we need to do today? This is why Eastern religions like Buddhism or its various New Agey equivalents have become so attractive since, I guess, the 60s in the West. They make no universal claim based upon a single moment in time. There's no historical fact that necessarily underpins it. They are a philosophy about life that someone like the Buddha discovered, but uh, that philosophy is always there and always accessible. But the Christian claim that all of reality hinges on what happened on a cross a couple of thousand years ago is quite different. This has always been a sticking point for people as they come face to face with the call of Christian faith, and perhaps it has been so for you. And it has become more difficult for people today the more we have become an interconnected world, the more aware we are of the huge distances culturally that separate us from other people and from times gone by. When you can send a text to a person immediately, who lives on the other side of the globe. We live in this wired, interconnected grid all the time. And then the idea that one apparently little event can be thought to have had such an impact by anyone with half a brain is an enormous barrier for many people today. Is my life really to be defined by someone who has never seen a flush toilet, never heard of the internet, let alone the telephone, never seen a printing press, never rode on an airplane or in a car, never seen a tank or a gun? 
I think this sense of distance actually impacts the other three matters we mentioned too, particularly following the rather strict moral teaching of Jesus and his sexual ethics that impact even the way we think, not just what we do. Am I really meant to follow the moral ethics of someone who has uh, never read Immanuel Kant, never heard of Freud, never had to deal with civil rights issues or the Jim Crow laws or had to answer a question about the Holocaust or wrestled with how to survive in a nuclear age or how to answer questions related to contemporary technology? Do we really take our guidance for life from someone wearing sandals and walking on dusty streets who lived 2,000 years ago? Paul is answering all of that question in our text this morning. It comes in this section of Romans where Paul is describing how all our life and reality is divided along one great division. We are either in Adam or in Christ. And as we've seen, he started off making that case in verse 12, and we come to verse 18 after he gets a little sidetracked answering various objections. He's calling the Roman Christians at the heart of the Roman Empire in the days of Nero to realize that their faith is no parochial thing but has a global significance for a global harvest. And so he comes to these verses in verses 18 to 19 to emphasize that global impact. What is he saying? He is saying that in the same way that we can see self-evidently and obviously the global impact of the sin of one man, Adam, so similarly the righteous life and obedience of one man, Christ, has a global impact too. Now, the difficulty, of course, of this line of reasoning today is that many people do not accept the historicity of Adam. So to make a case based upon an assumption that we can no longer assume will inevitably fall flat. Plus, even those who do hold to the historicity of Adam don't always hold to what is known as his headship. That is, they don't think that uh, we sin in him. Now, I've made the case a couple of times in this section that the theological objections to the headship of Adam are understandable, perhaps from an intellectual point of view, but from a practical point of view, uh, Paul's argument here is pretty easy to believe. If you like, the doctrine of original sin is the one Christian doctrine for which there is an awful lot of indubitable empirical evidence. It's helpful to clarify what is meant and what is not meant by original sin. So when Christians say we are sinners, they do not mean that we are all as bad as we could be even naturally outside of Christ. What they mean is that even the good is tainted with the bad. Even the most beautiful skyscraper, the greatest painting, is filled with ambition and of a selfish kind. 
It's a bit like a drop of ink in, in a clear glass of water. One drop impacts the whole. It's not denying that non-Christians do good things. Of course they do, though good so-called, for we believe that no one is righteous but God. Or uh, to deny that Christians do bad things. Uh, I'm a pastor. I can tell you they do. The point is human nature. There's a tendency, a diagnostic description that makes sense of life as we found it. To quote Forrest Gump, Life is like a box of chocolates but you never know what you're going to get. And there are other ways of explaining Paul's description of the headship of Adam. But uh, Paul's argument here is not only challenging because of that theological objection that people have, but also the historical regarding Adam's actual existence. It is certainly true that Christians need not have their conscience bound by outmoded scientific descriptions any more than they should have their conscience bound by a pre-Galileo view of, um, of the world. I've got a paper on God and science that I mentioned last week that's at the back this morning that outlines some of these things. But um, that said... Before we elaborate what these verses actually say and mean, and that will get into the historicity of Adam that Paul here assumes as part of his arguments. In other words, whereas there are other matters related to God and science that is far beyond the boundaries of this particular text, and that's why I wrote that paper on God and science to help us with that. Here in the text, it is assumed that as Christ existed, so Adam existed. And the different ways of putting that together, and that paper will help you with that. Before we elaborate what these verses actually say and mean for us and today, in terms of Paul's argument about the global impact of Christ, there is, though, a textual difficulty. So we've worked through the barriers, now we're getting to the actual text. And that textual difficulty is this. Paul uses the word all in verse 18. So, as all in Adam, so all in Christ. And so, because of that, people have thought that perhaps this is what is known as a universalistic text. That is, they think Paul was saying that because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of the righteous life he lived, absolutely everyone everywhere in all time will be saved without exception. Here is my response to that. First, all does not always mean all without exception in the Bible. Quite often it means all without distinction. I'll give you a couple of examples in a moment. Second, Paul self-evidently did not believe in universalism, otherwise he would not have spent his life and died to take the gospel to people who did not yet believe. There would be no point in that if they were already all saved. Third, Paul clearly does not believe in universalism because the next verse clarifies and explains, it begins with four, indicating he's explaining what he's just said, 
And there he uses the word many, not all. Not to mention that Paul has made his view on hell and wrath and the need for repentance and faith in Jesus very clear so far in Romans, to put it mildly. So these three arguments against the universalistic view are usually persuasive. The first can be a little hard to accept. But consider this. Here are those couple of examples. When the Gospels say all Israel went out to hear Jesus or John the Baptist, are we meant to imagine that every single person, man, woman, and child, was there right then? Or that without distinction, the message was permeating? Surely the latter. Or when the prophets promise that the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all. And Peter preaches that at Pentecost this was fulfilled. How could it be given that only a few thousand believe that day? That's not all. Without exception. But it is all without distinction. Every tribe, nation, category is now potentially recipients of the gospel, including you. But you say, Pastor, why then does Paul use the word all here? Even if he clarifies it in the next verse as many. Why not say many twice? Or why not make sure that we do not misunderstand what he means by all in that verse by saying explicitly all tribes or all peoples or all without distinction? I think because Paul is emphasizing the global reach of Christ. What Paul is saying here to this little group of Christians in Rome, probably in the main not elite or respected, surrounded by the trappings of power and wealth against them, wrestling with how to be a community together, called by Paul to support his mission, Paul is saying to these Romans this. You think the times are bad. You think pagan society surrounding you is bad. You look around and you see all sorts of sin and damage and disease and disaster and difficulty, challenge, crisis after crisis. You think it's all bad and it's all going to all. Have I got news for you? The gospel of Jesus Christ is going to all as well. So having spent 20 minutes setting up the main point of this passage, let me now tell you what it is. 
<laughs> the disproportionate, massive impact of this one act of righteousness should lead us Christians to a similarly disproportionate, massive commitment to this Christ. I have an illustration for you. Uh, at dinner this week in our house, a rather amazing conversation happened. One of our daughters had her birthday this week, and she uh, was talking about what she might get as a present. She said out loud that if she got some money, she would buy an item of clothing or something. Then she asked her sister what she would get if she had some money. Her sister thought for a moment and said, if I had some money, I would buy a Bible. Her sister said, well, okay, say you've bought the Bible, right? <laughs> if you had some money, what would you buy? Her sister thought for a moment and said, well, if I had some money, I would buy a notebook so I could write down what I learned from the Bible. <laughs> See a little halo sort of glowing. So her sister says, well, look, okay, say you've got the Bible and you've got the notebook, right? If you had some money, what would you buy? Her sister thought and then said, well, then I give it to God. <laughs> okay, her sister said, say you've got the Bible, you've got the notebook, and you've given what you need to God, okay? What would you buy? We finally got down to something that she would like for herself. It, it was a funny moment in our house. And by the way, let me tell you that, you know, the doctrine of original sin impacts the moody household too, just in case you were wondering. But it illustrated for me how a single act, like a pebble dropped in a pond, ripples out to the furthest horizon. Because we are so interconnected. How does that work with what Jesus did? He was born in a manger, no crib for a bed, surrounded by poverty, encased in humility, wore no crown, carried no scepter of power, no robes of dignity, born to a woman yet unwed, grew up as a carpenter, no special cassock or degree, no silver spoon in his mouth, no Rolls Royce picking him up from school. 
Those hands that shaped tables and houses and wood ornaments and cabinets had flung stars into space. And the one who hammered nails into wood one day was to be hammered by nails into wood. That man of Nazareth, despised region, untrained teacher, miracle worker, they said, was devilish. As soon as he got popular, he was criticized came not for the righteous but the unrighteous, not for proud Pharisee but for broken prostitute, overturning the tables in the temple of religious moral compromise, teaching with such wisdom no one could quite believe where he had got it from. And so they quickly began to plot to find a way to nail him to that cross and be done with him once for all, No Savior have we but Caesar, who is our Lord. In Christ, you can have him. We'll make sure he's dead because our Sabbath is coming. And was dead and rose again and reigns triumphant and glorious. This God incarnate. Almighty power stooped so low to be a second Adam. And one day, every knee shall bow. disproportionate, massive impact of this one act of righteousness should lead us to a similarly disproportionate, massive commitment to that Christ. Therefore, repent and believe. (laughs) Usually a good way to end a sermon. Would we then repent of every way we have marginalized Jesus? I hear these jokes so often in Christian subculture. Someone drives out of a car park and they almost hit the person and they say to them, oh, I'm so sorry, I almost put you on the one-way trip to Jesus. Oh, you know, that well-known old joke that I've told myself about how, you know, the Sunday school person is being told a story about a squirrel and no one wants to give an answer and the child says, well, it's, it, it, it sound, I know the answer's Jesus, but it certainly sounds like a squirrel to me. And we all think, oh, this little pathetic Jesus. Let me ask you this. How does that view fit into Romans 5, 18 and 19? 
the result of one act of righteousness was justification, brings life for all. Through the obedience of one man, many will be made righteous. The hinge point, the apex, the very center of all reality. So would we repent of every way we marginalize Jesus? And would we instead seek every way to maximize, to show him as he is truly great? Here are some ideas or ways that you can do this. Blogs. (laughs) Write blogs about Jesus. Go home this afternoon Get to your blog and find a way to maximize the view of Jesus. Write songs about Jesus. Write books about Jesus. Mothers, tell your children of this Jesus. You know the phrase, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world? Your role as a mother so significant. Would you make sure that that hand that rocks that cradle has Jesus' hand in your hand? Tell your children about Jesus. Make money for the maximization of Jesus. See, this is not a choice between having a really exciting, fun life or doing church stuff. This is a choice between spending your life on something that is only a parochial and passing significance and instead repenting of your sins and spending your life on the one thing, maximizing the one event that does have not just a global significance, but an eternal one too. I am calling you to invest your life where it really matters. The disproportionate Massive impact of this one act of righteousness should lead us to a similarly disproportionate, massive commitment to that Christ. Let us pray.